to a new year and a new episode of Nota Bene. What's up, Nate Freeman? Benjamin, how are you? Uh, oh, it feels great. It feels great to be back in New York City. Great to be back in 2023. What a year this is going to be. I'm it's already starting out like fire. I mean, collapsing. Nate Freeman's about to be elected the Speaker of the House of Representatives, so that's exciting for the pod, I feel like. A lot of, a lot of content there. I know the, the D.C. area is your... I just got two votes. <laughs> I just got two votes on the floor. You uh, see that? Listen, it's it's yep. easy to beat that guy. We are, uh, you know, I'm. It's it's like it's like a slow start to the year. I'm just like trying to get into the saddle, like show up at the office, mm-hmm. sit at the desk, send the emails, just place my first. Hey, listen, I just during we were just recording the the podcast little little uh, come after this intro. Uh, sold my first six figure or placed my first six figure work of the year uh, while we were doing that. So it's it's already looking up. Benjamin Gottel, not on St. Bart's, not skiing in Kstad. Or St. Moritz. Just you know what's chic? In. Being in New York in. for Christmas. Best time totally. of the year. Uh, yeah. It was incredible. I mean, it, it, is it chicer than being on a boat while Lenny Kravitz plays in, you know, in the Caribbean? Probably. I, in its I way, think so. I think it is. Like, every, I, I had, you know, uh, we spent a lot of time over the past two years talking about um, Jomo, and I had a lot of Jomo looking at the gram over the past week or two. <laughs> I was happy not to be in an airport, not even a small, totally. regional, uh, you know, general aviation-only airport. I was really just happy to be chilling. Mm-hmm. uh yeah, I uh, went to see Tillman's on like on the mm. second to last day for the fourth time. Like that was a highlight. Took the that my son demanded mm. the purchase of the Tillman's catalog, uh, which was a, a hefty souvenir. Honestly, gr- that's a great buy. I did great eye on the state. kid. Great and yeah, like, sure kids are amazing. Like he was like yeah. he zipped through. He's going even faster than I am through these rooms. I'm like, slow down. Which is your favorite one and why? And he'd like <laughs> hyper focus on one. I'm like that one, obviously. I was like, but you didn't even look at it. But he did. Kids' brains are incredible. That's amazing. Um, how was ladies' first Christmas? Incredible. Um, so, so, so sick. We road trip down to Washington, D.C., America's capital. Um, and uh, we had a nice little time in, in Bethesda, Maryland. We, you know, unwrapped a ton of gifts. She got so many presents. It was just really remarkable. Um, and then after that, we drove from Washington, D.C. to the great Durham, North Carolina, home of the National Museum of Art, along with a number of other incredible highlights we ate like kings and queens my lord that i had i had a lot of good meals in i cooked an incredible prime wrist a prime rib Mm -hmm. a lot of caviar was bumped and otherwise uh eaten um fantastic and then we stopped by baltimore on the way home just as a pit stop we got to say the great hotel the ulysses friends of the pod really you know yeah they leave notes about the pod when you stay in the room it's incredible I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so Hugo, if you're listening, shout out to Hugo and the whole team at Ulysses. Just a fabulous little hotel. If you happen to be in Baltimore, I actually ran into three people I knew. Just in Who knew? It's, it's, it's popping it, off it's down there. Quite the um, and you were back, you were back in the greatest off. city in the world for New Year's Eve? Yeah, we were back in the greatest city in the world. Had some supper at Time, a little sushi joint on Canal Street that is... Quite popular these days. You weren't with, at with the, the fish show at Madison Square Garden. No, missing this year. I, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of art bros were at the fish shows. I uh, saw on the gram and and I'll be in person. I know. Go to next time. Next time. Fortieth uh, anniversary of the greatest band mm-hmm. in the world this year. Pretty excited for that. <laughs> Who is it? Uh, Who and is how was time? Was it popping off? Who was down there? Popping off. It was just packed. We had you know a great crew in attendance. A lot of sushi was consumed. Um, we stayed later than I anticipated, which was incredible, you know, given baby. But, you know, past midnight, even a little bit farther. You know who wasn't there? 
Anna Delvey, because she's on House Arrest, but she's been entertaining an awful lot of art world folks. I saw her and Ellie Ryan's getting quite close mm-hmm. and personal uh, on the gram. I was wondering if you were going to ask about this. Um, I, of course, received an invitation to her little soiree. Uh, I declined. Um, and <laughs> that's all there is to say. I don't want to be a okay. or anything. I don't know. It looks pretty fun. I'm... If you're going to be under House Arrest, you might as well throw some, yeah. some, some house parties. I'm glad that they can let they let her drink. She doesn't have like an ankle bracelet. That's good. She should be able to, to imbibe as she she wants to. Um, it must kind of suck to not be able to leave her house. Maybe not a know? great that's, look that's for the immigration courts. I'm not sure. Right. She was obviously you know held up in prison for way too long. That was you know poorly mishandled. Do I want to go party at her apartment? Which would you rather buy? Uh, one of her uh, pictures or a Come Wizard six thousand and four? Oh, God, easy <laughs> answer. Come Wizard. That's, Are you serious? Cool. I still don't know who he is, and I refuse yeah, to learn. It. You, we're never going to know. So, did you look at the preview? Someone already bought the Kanye one, which is like... I, it's in okay. my inbox. I opened it, and then I closed it, and I was like, you know what? As we're about to discuss, there are many art worlds, and that is an art world I don't wish to participate in. <laughs> you want to be excluded yeah, from that super narrative? Excluded. I'm <laughs> okay with it. Speaking of exclusions from the narrative, um, unless you have anything else pressing, and I know there are a ton of open, openings all start next week. We'll, we'll get into that, I think, on next week's pod. There's a lot of yeah. big things happening here and ar- around the world. A lot of big things happening. Um, well, but, you know, we are... We, yeah, we're, we're about to be joined by uh, a former colleague of yours and, and both friends of ours, uh, Charlotte Burns and Burn uh, of the Burns Halpern Report. Uh, who are absolutely brilliant and have been looking for the past number of years at data of how people of color and women are represented in the art market and in museum collections. And they have some really startling and kind of depressing news about how underrepresented, and we're talking like single digit percentages, uh, people from those classes are. Uh, and I think they do a really great job of presenting some of those findings to us. Yeah. These are these are two of the smartest arts journalists alive, you know, Charlotte and Juliet. So I am really just just honored that they came on the pod because it's awesome, and they really just you know spun spun some knowledge. Yeah, no, they really did, and it's like a little bit disheartening. But they're like the fact that they're able to engage in this kind of really an independent journalist project that's like really research based and long term. I mean, it's such a it's such a blessing that we have that. I think it's a really interesting model for really in depth reporting uh, on micro markets, such as like an art market going forward. So I think there's like a meta story there as well that I find quite quite interesting. Totally. Um, well, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, without yeah, further ado, uh, there, uh, Julia and uh, uh, Charlotte coming up with us right after this. Welcome back to Note. Welcome ben. back, Benjamin. Uh, happy New Year, guys! Nate and I are so happy to be to be joined by uh, mm-hmm. two superstar journalists and researchers, uh, the producers of the Burns Halpern Report. Charlotte, Julia, welcome to Nota Bene. This is really special. This is thank you for having us. We're delighted Thanks to be here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're usually like pretty loosey goosey and talk about all the fun stuff, eating out and gossip and stuff. But we thought it was important after reading through the data that you guys produced and dropped uh, towards the end of last year on representation within the art world and the art market. And we can talk about uh, how those are the same and different in a little bit. Um, And really the lack of representation. I was um, really Mm -hmm. surprised. And, you know, oftentimes is a phrase, if, if, if you're surprised or outraged, you haven't been paying attention. I thought I had been paying attention. Um, But you guys for the past several years have been looking at data about how um, marginalized classes of people are represented within the global art world. 
don't you mm. tell us like what is the Burns Halpin Report for those who don't know, and uh, how did it get started? I want to know how to get started because, of course, you know I've known the two of you for years, a very a very long time. Well, actually, you mentioned that you usually talk about food. We usually talk about drink, and this began with um, in a bar, actually. And Julia and I met for a drink, and you know we were talking about headlines at the time. This is 2018. There was lots of stories at the time around it being a great moment to be a black American artist. There'd been the big Kerry James Marshall auction record. There'd been the Basquiat um, Skull. $110 million sale. There'd been uh, the Kerry James Marshall exhibition at the Met and uh, in LA. Mm -hmm. And so there was this sense that this was like pivotal change, systemic change. It was a great moment. And we were just discussing I recall. this. Do you remember? It, well, it there was really a lot of, of patting on the back. We all wrote that story, I think. <clears throat> yeah. I think we wrote it. Right. Yeah. But is, is it, it's good to get back in that mindset of, of 2018, though. You know, like like the way that we were feeling, the way that the market was looking. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so we were talking about it because we were like, we're two years into a Trump presidency. Is it really that great? Like, and if it is great, that's a phenomenon that's separate to the rest of society. And we should probably talk about it in that way. And if it's not that great, then we should probably have a different conversation. Um, so it began over drinks, which which basically means that we had no idea what we were getting into. And what and so I, I understand the impetus, were you, but how serious was it when you're having drinks like oh maybe we should do something like this or was it really like let's like let's get down and like how quickly did it go from like hanging out and having a drink and like wouldn't it be interesting to find out to like actually putting in the work opening up a shared google spreadsheet or whatever and inputting data i think we Charlotte probably loves that a weekly meeting. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no she loves a meeting. and so it like happened pretty quickly that she was like instead of like going to the gym together we'll just like we'll just meet every week and do data stuff. And so like then became on my calendar. That's my kind of gym. Yeah, yeah, brain gym. Uh, brain gym, and art so, gym, really. Yeah, yeah, so then we started meeting and like figuring out what this would look like and ask, like coming up with a list of museums and figuring out what to ask them. And we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Um, and if we had, I we definitely wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, That's fair. But that was, yeah, that was how it started. And the museums didn't at the time, I think, have any idea, A, what we were asking for. Like they don't, they didn't collect this information. So we had to keep the ask wow. narrow that they could build it from scratch, which was a lot of work for them. Um, and I think they were all like, oh, it's 2018. We're going to look awesome. Uh, and so they were mm. really inclined to participate. Uh, and and then, you know, we didn't know what data cleaning was or anything like that. So we got all this data in and then it took us a really long time to figure out what it actually meant. And then when we did, I think everybody was surprised. It was the same as you bet. It was just like we weren't paying enough attention either. I'm, pic I'm picturing a scene in, 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 a, in a law legal movie where the, the bad guys pull up with like a truck full of, of files and they have to go through all the files, you know, and it takes them years but they do it and they, they get to... You know, they get the bad guys. It's not that cinematic. Yeah. It's basically us on different laptops, <laughs> like drinking, you know, LaCroix. How do you say that drink? LaCroix? LaCroix. La anyway, yeah, I just guys, have a memory of us. You gotta go spindrift. I'm sorry. Yeah. You gotta go spindrift. <laughs> Yeah, we, Never. we probably, I, I could say that more easily. Um, so it's us sitting there <laughs> drinking and we're on different laptops, barely talking apart from say, I'm just going to go to the bathroom, I'll be back. And then we look at the spreadsheets and we get progressively quieter and quieter as we go through all these rows and rows of numbers and it dawns on us how bad they are. 
And then we're like, should we have a drink? And neither of us really feel like it. So then we go home. <laughs> like that's what that's what we do usually no, not every so cinematic. year. So that that's how it begins in 2018, and you've done it uh, several times since. Was it always housed at Artnet? What was the what was the first kind of um, outlet, or kind of how did you present it to the world the first go around? So the first time Charlotte was um, at, in other words, um, which was mm. the the what oh god what's the art advisory called it's like already gone from my mind AAP. Well, Schwartzman and AAP. Uh, and, and, yeah AAP yeah, so I knew it was Alan but also yeah Amy Hubble friend, friend of the pod Alan Schwartzman like, of course let's, let's be clear here yeah, yeah. um and uh and so you know she had her own platform and I was working at Artnet and it at the time I mean still it's like pretty rare for publications to collaborate um like that across a big project but we were just sort of like we want to do this we it's such a pain in the ass project that we can't ask anyone who works for us to do it for us uh so we might as well just like do it in our free time sure that's amazing very, i mean if cool i know that you, you were <laughs> i didn't know you were working on this when you were also like putting in insane hours editing my stories at our and dealing with all the lawyers and everything but you were working on the report on the side when all that was going down yeah, and now I've wow. left our net. <laughs> now the side hustle is the main hustle. So, I mean, flat, uh, on the process level, kind of fast forwarding into time, I want to talk about this year's report because the numbers are the most pertinent. And it was presented as like a major piece of kind of Artnet's kind of fall or early winter reportage. I mean, it's a massive chunk of the website if you go through and look at how much you guys presented. Uh, are you guys like subcontractors? Like, how does what's the process? I'm just interested in how journalism is working these days. Because you guys are doing like, I mean, intense, intense research and incredible work product. But as independent journalists, like, how do you then partner uh, to make sure that it gets to see as wide a public as is possible? Well, I was still working at Arnett until December 31st, so okay. I was still working there the whole time. So it was very easy in that way um, to to just kind of put it on my schedule. <laughs> uh, and that is really all it took. Um, I mean, obviously, we work with Arnett a lot on the data piece, and they're invaluable in that way. I mean, all of the auction data comes from them, and they have incredible analysts who work with us um, to kind of slice and dice that and make sure that it's, it's sort of accurate and everything is zipped up. Um, but in that case, it was just sort of like, this is something we had done. We decided we were going to do it again. And um, and I just opened the Google Cal and put it on. <laughs> Pulled it into the CMS. All right. So that's kind of how it got to be and how it got to be, I think, this year really impactful because there was so much uh, coverage around it, uh, both the present, the, all the words that you guys created and the data you presented and really easy to see and sad to see graphs and then you had tons of other contributors who were kind of commenting or analyzing on it which i thought was really helpful but let's tell the people what did you do how did you get started on this year's or last year's presentation like what was the who did you go out to and where are you pulling the data in what data specifically are you looking at and then we'll get into what some of those results were can i just say one thing about your question about journalism because i think it's a really important question <clears throat> is that this is probably the kind of thing that publications used to pay for and just do as part of their mandate um totally you know, when I first started at the art newspaper, the first thing I did was a big investigation with Georgina Adam into Qatar being the biggest buyer of contemporary art. 
And I was like, journalism's great. We're probably going to do investigations like this all the time. And then after that, it was just art fair reports and auction reports and all the stuff that like is kind of clicky and quick and internet-y. And so I don't know that any publication would commission this, to be really yeah, honest about it. Right. And that's partly why we did it, because we were like, when else would this happen? How else would this happen? And over the years of doing it, we began to realize that it would be more important for it to be independent if we want it to be mm, more of definitely. a tool for people. And we want it to be um, transparent, as transparent as possible. Um, you know, ideally, we'd love it to be something that you know, students and academics can use or researchers or whoever really is interested in these figures. So we we work with Artnet, which has been great. We also ran it on my website, this tiny little tadpole. Mm -hmm. And um, and we got funding for it, basically, which is how we paid writers and did a film. And we just don't make we just don't draw anything from it. Um, wow. So it's sort of a labor of love. But it's probably the only way it would happen, which is really sad, actually, I think, about journalism. Um, and I don't think totally. many people realize that because everyone's always complaining about journalism and complaining about this that, and the other. And I'm always like, what did you pay for recently? And it's usually like nothing. I know. That, I mean, that's what the, the you know, paywalls are going toward, as Joy and I, we've talked about much in the past. And, you know, good reporting is expensive and it's, it's tough to pony up. You know? Yeah, I mean, this took us two years. So it's like. Yeah. It's also like if you're paying, if you're a subscriber, you expect content all the time, which makes total sense. Um, like you're not just going to pay for something and then two years later be like, oh, I can't wait for the fruits of this like monthly fee. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I mean, it is fundamentally impractical, you know, in the context of the way that media is funded right now. It seems as though there's so many stakeholders that are going to be able to use this uh, institutions, museums, uh, even auction houses and collectors um, that I wish there was a way, some sort of micropayment that all these people that are going to draw, I would presume great value out of it would be able to give back a little bit towards the process of its creation. We ultimately think, I mean, I know that, there isn't, there's no answer, but I just, I think you there know, is an seems... answer actually. I think that what we've come to realize is that our journalism, our editorial stuff is slightly different than the database. And part of our nightmare every mm -hmm. year is the fact that we coincide them, that we work on a journalism deadline for a database that's unwieldy. And so probably it would be better to separate out the database as a thing and then right. have the separate journalism. And I think we've been moving in that kind of direction in any case of thinking of how we do and all the content that we did this year, like commissioning lots and lots of other people to do it. Um, having it be much more collaborative and having other, you know, it gives more people the, a way into it. Um, so I think in the future, that's probably what we'd want to do. We'd want it to be an independent database that more people input into, that there are more standards around, you know, what we do is flawed and not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So it's just a marker of a moment, but it could definitely be improved. And, you know, it's definitely got better through collaborations. It wouldn't exist without it. Um, let's start a little bit at the beginning then again. So kind of what data were you, what questions are you trying to answer and what data did you go out to try and find in order to answer these questions? So we chose data sets that were narrow enough that we thought museums could produce them because none of them had tracked this data before. So, you know, obviously 2008, 2018, there was a reason that we started with Black American artists and that's because that was the kind of whole like media narrative at the time. Um, and then in reporting that, um, we were speaking to a museum director about his numbers and he was like, you know, you guys should really look at women because like, you know, we've been so tied up with women that we haven't even really been 
focusing on black American artists. So like, you should definitely do women. And we were like, okay. (laughs) Um, And so that was sort of what ended up happening and why we decided to do women next. And then this time around, we wanted to kind of build a more iterative database, a database that we could continue to add to and layer kind of like new information on. So we did a different mix of museums that's kind of more geographically representative of the country. Previously, we had been really clustered on the coasts. Um, And we asked them all the same questions. So we asked them both for Black American artists and female identifying artists, and then also the kind of intersectional component of Black female identifying artists, American artists. Um, And that was, was sort of the idea of like, let's just create a baseline that we can then add on to. So like in the future, we would love to do like Latinx artists and Asian American Mm -hmm. artists, but that is, those identities are even more complicated in terms of like, nobody agrees on what they mean or how to define them even more so than the two we've done. And so that was sort of the logic behind starting where we did. And you're looking both at acquisitions to permanent collections as well as solo exhibitions uh, in the museums. Is that correct? Solo group groups. Yeah, so like, <laughs> and then um, acquisitions and then breaking that apart into gifts and purchases. And then also there's the market component then of them. So the museums were from 2008 to 2020, end of 2020. And then we looked at the international, so that and that's American. And then we look at the international auction market from 2008 to mid 2022. And that's, you know, everything, everywhere that sold at any auction house in that period. And so what do we find out? Because the the narrative that has been in my brain has been that, you know, uh, black and female artists are on the rise in the market. Like, that's where all the action is. Museums, I mean, if you're a middle-aged white dude, good luck getting a museum show or getting collected by a museum right now. I mean, that's very much cocktail party chatter, both those two points that's out there. I can say from my, you know, I've heard people make both of those arguments. Is that true? No. No? What, what do the numbers tell us? Um. The numbers tell us that that is not true, you know, between in those 12 years at museums, for instance, just 11% of the acquisitions were of work by female identifying artists, just 2.2% were by black American artists. Um, And if you were a black American female artist, it's even worse, it's just 0.5% of acquisitions and gifts. So the numbers are tiny still, Um, you know, if you in demographics, again, is another kind of flawed way of thinking about it. But um, if you mm-hmm. did look at demographics as a as a way of thinking about it, then for female artists and Black American artists, it's around a fifth of what it should be. For Black American women, it's they're underrepresented by a factor of thirteen. So, and the market, and then the market's just uh, you know even smaller than the market's. What's the way of saying it? It's the the numbers are lower. The representation is lower in the market, although the market moved more quickly recently. But the figures are still kind of tiny, like for black American female artists, mm-hmm. the market's like 200, just over $200 million in that period of time. So it's not that much money. So you can say right. there's growth, there is growth, but it's growth from not a lot to a little bit more than not a lot. But Julia, it's you can expand on that. mind boggling to me. And I think, I know. you know, it's also, the numbers are so small that, you know, a weird quirk, like, 2015 was the peak for Black American artists acquisitions, which is also interesting because like we think, oh, you know, 2019, right, 2020, so much better. But the reason that it happened in 2015 is because the National Gallery acquired the, the Corcoran collection. 
um, right. which had a lot of Black American artists in it. And so that's like, it's the the data set, even though we're looking at almost, at, you know, 360,000 objects, it's still a small enough set that like some quirk like that can sway the way the wind blows. And then you see it, like the numbers climb again in 2018 and 2019. Um, but, and it's more broad, like it's, you know, it's, you see a commitment across a greater number of institutions, but it doesn't exceed 2015. Um, so it just kind mm -hmm. of shows you how still piecemeal it is. Were there little discoveries in the process of, of, of you know, getting to this like larger narrative uh, that is in and of itself quite shocking? Were there were there discoveries that like really blew you away, like little data points or little, like takeaways? What, what are some things that you just recall being shocked by? <laughs> people is mine <laughs> so we um we did this, <laughs> this thing where um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we, that's just Great a vibe idea. um we did this thing where in 2019 we looked at the market for pablo picasso against women we were like we need to give this a context like let's look at another market that's roughly comparable and it turned out in 2019 that the market for, for all female artists across all genres and all periods of time was smaller than the market for work by pablo picasso at auction so this year we were like, oh, we should check the Picasso thing again. And we did. And we were like, oh, my God, great. Like tiny hooray progress. Like the market's larger this time around. Like that's actually kind of like, you know, good if you are used to bad things being good. And then we were like, oh, wait. And then we were checking. This was another one of our spreadsheet moments where it was like, oh, hang on a minute. And the museums had submitted, you know, we rely on the museum submitting data and we clean it and we clean it, but there's so many objects and we won't bore you with mm. the iterations of how you can clear the name, you know, Ed Ruscheh from the database a million times, depending on how the museum wrote it. <clears throat> so we, I'm fascinated by that, but, but sure. No. <laughs> it's like Ed Ruscheh, Ruscheh Ed, Ed, you know, middle name Ruscheh, okay, Mr. Ruscheh, uh -huh. like the, you wow. have to clear every single one of them Ed and Ruscheh then American. it will be Ed Ruscheh American, Edward, Ed Ruscheh parenthesis Edward American. Ruscheh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. dates exactly and so it's like you can have it 15 sure. permutations wow. of one single name that you have to clean to get the right number and you can take wow. out 40 Ruchets and still have one and having that one in can be enough to um sorry <clears throat> having that one in can be enough to um really skew things so we were looking at the database and we were like wait there's three guys that have crept onto our female artist list um Juan Gris, Ruchet, and worst of all, George Bazalitz, who obviously was like a misogynist who said female artists can't paint and the market never lies. And then here he is showing up like a month before we publish. Wow. And we're like, oh, my God. And he's they skewed taking those three guys out of our list, skewed the whole who market. Like and caused major it market guys like they're not like we're not talking about like Basquiat. Like this is, you know. Right, but, yeah, still right. Good, but you know. it was enough to bring the entire market like there were about 500 million above. And it was enough to bring the entire market 30 million below Picasso. And we were uh, like, oh, geez. great. And you just take out these names uh, and you watch the entire market shift. Um, and that's something we don't ever know how to capture. Like we do it every year when we clean the data and there'll be some artist you've never heard of right underneath, you know, Louise Bourgeois. And you're like, what mm -hmm. is this person doing here? Like having a, you know, museum acquisitions or a market presence of the scale of mm -hmm. like this artist. I was always shocked by that, Julia. I think we can talk about this. When we looked at the data at Artnet to see like the most searched artists or, you know, in the back end, and it was always like some random artist in the top 10. Remember that? Yeah, I mean, I think that was partially because like those were like photographers who shot like sexy women and also children. It was like, <laughs> but, 
Um, yeah, and I think, <laughs> I think the other thing that is super interesting in terms of like discoveries is that there are these these artists who have been deeply collected by museums who we don't even really know about. It's like kind of the flip side of the dynamic where it's a really prominent artist like Betty Starr and she's like really not represented in the market or institutions very well. But there are these women that just kept coming up. That like we still want to look into more like um, Elaine Lustig Cohen, who is like the the seventh most collected women woman artist in all of American museums. And she's an American graphic designer. Um, and she like, yeah, and she was really known for her work in the 50s and the 60s. And she created like book covers and museum catalogs. Like there, there is this kind of like fascinating alternative art world that even mm. exists in these museums. There are many art worlds. Yeah. There, yeah. There's so like many art checking. worlds that happen concurrently. Um, yeah. So obviously I'm like super shocked by these numbers. And even though I have like an academic and intellectual understanding that we live in a patriarchal racist society, like to see it in black and white and how it's reflected. Um, the market's one thing, but in museums is mind blowing. But I am, so I'm, I'm looking for any bit of oxygen or hope. So I'm wondering, did you guys do any slicing and dicing of the data of, for instance, art made since 2000 for instance because i'm wondering if there's if, if of the ultra contemporary market if there's any noticeable difference in the data for acquisitions and market space yeah we did actually um and the other thing we should say is that like we're kind of reducing all of these numbers but um you know there are these are three really distinct groups there's really distinct behavior um and then like julia said there were just artists in, like each one of these is a is a life um that's really rich and full so we we did splice the data from that perspective one thing that holds true actually across the three groups across the markets is the sense of um the superstar effect that there's a real um i mean we see it in the market anyway but it's much it has a much broader base in the overall market than it does in these three groups so there'll be a real concentration of capital and activity around a really small handful of names with female artists it skews like old, very old and dead. And with black American artists, it's much, much younger. And that's actually true also in museums, like there's the acquisitions are um, much more focused on living artists. But within female artists, we do see that there was this recent um, swing in attention and real rapid growth in kind of uh, in attention paid to hyper contemporary artists. So very young female artists reaching, you know, huge figures. But it's still not very much when you look at the global total. Um, but yeah, you see that shift to emerging across uh, the markets. And in terms of museums, I'm pulling up. It's taken me since you asked that question to open our <laughs> database because it's so big. Um, I can't even imagine. Too big for Google Docs, that is for sure. Um, and we did break down by date for the works that had dates. Um, and this is not a fast. And I'm asking because in, at least I was wondering if maybe my sense of that there's been some progress made is because I'm so involved in and so many of the headlines are about the ultra contemporary market. Um, I think that's true. I do think that's true. And I think, you know, we found for work. So also like breaking down, looking at contemporary museums, um, you know, they perform much better than their peers for sure like they are closer to representing the country um or even you know overshooting it to correct for long time imbalances so like contemporary museums 
um, for Black American artists collected like around eight percent. Um, is there? Is, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to give a shout out to one or two museums in particular that just overperformed or haven't overperformed? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, MCA Chicago is one that kind of like performed Great. across the board really, really strongly. And also like you can see them commit more and more as you look at the spreadsheet year over year. Um, they were spectacular. Um, DIA, um, DIA Art Foundation, which like, you wouldn't think they don't, you know, they have a very clearly defined time period that they're looking at. Um, and they were the most in terms of acquisition of work by women. I think it was like 60%. Um, Amazing. Which is, and you can see that it happens like when Jessica Morgan gets there. Yeah, like, I saw mm -hmm. I saw that bit of data, which was really interesting. Very it's, cool. It's amazing that, I mean, in some ways it's like sad that you, that it's like not systemic and it's just like one person has to do the whole thing. But also the fact that one person can have that big an impact um, is wild. Totally. And also newer museums, you know, you see like um, Pam um, has been doing really good work. Um, the VMFA has been doing really good work. The NASHA has been doing really great work. It's often small museums. Yeah, we see like, we really see that it's not a budget thing, actually. Like this idea that you're going to have to have loads and loads of money, you're going to have to have a really rich board. That's not true. Like the area we see the most movement is absolutely not within the richest museums. And so that's really interesting because you see that's this like, long commitment, um, like PAFA is another example, is this long commitment over a period of time. Um, and you also see that, however, on the kind of counterbalance to that is that if you do have a massive budget, you know, if you're MoMA or the National Gallery, we can see in the data um, that they really upped their um, focus on these areas and created change enough to change the numbers. So if you look institution by institution, you can see on the line by line basis where they're who's been really committing over which period of time. Um, and there are, there's a bunch of museums really doing great work. I think a lot of people are really trying. The other thing, though, is that the um, gifts to museums so much outweigh the purchases of museums that even if museums themselves have this like, you know, great um, acquisition strategy and an incredible focus on whatever their mission is they're still inheriting the sort of legacy agenda of everything that was promised to the museum or maybe a market agenda if they're looking at the buy one get one free phenomenon so you know the gifts are 60 percent of the works that we could check of gifts um there was 60 percent um overall of the works that came into the collections of museums so the museums can't outspend their donors gifts and so that's another reason that the change is sort of camouflaged in a way and also, like, yeah, I think that's part of why our numbers are in some ways a lagging indicator, because people have committed years ago to donate something when they die and then they die and then it shows up in our numbers that year. So in some ways, like what what is entering museums collections is inherently like a vestige of the past, you know, you know especially if they're gifts or, or bequests. But but even more broadly, and this, I think, speaks to the heart of the problem is that museum collections are very much a reflection of the patronage of museums in many senses because they are, at least in the United States, so dependent upon private found, uh, private philanthropy and, and direct donations from donors. So they're going to reinforce the economic and social system that is already in power, right? So how do they, is, do you guys, have you guys given any thought in looking at these numbers and what they mean to like, what is the out if we're, you know, if, if museums and visual culture at large reflect the dominance, uh, the, the dominant 
you know, kind of politics and power structures of society, like what's the answer? I mean, I think it's a really great question that there is no specific clear answer to. Um, <clears throat> I think the first step though, is to have a more, um, like a more reality-based conversation about what it is that we're buying, what it is that we value. That's really our hope for this data study. We don't think it's um, you know, authoritative. We don't think it's definitive. It's not everything everywhere. It doesn't reflect everything entirely, but it does um, bring us closer, I think, to what the reality of the situation is rather than the perception. And what's really interesting is when we made this film, we interviewed some people outside the Met um, on a kind of sunny Sunday. And we're like, what do you think? Basically, at an art fair, Julia and I had, again, another great idea over drinks, um, gone around, like, you know, some party being like, okay, let's like, let's go and ask people what they think. And we were asking like, art well people and everybody overshot it. Like weird, shaky videos of asking people like on the boat at the David's Werner <laughs> party at Perry Plus, like what they think the total number of acquisitions of work by women are. We're yeah. really genius. We had a great time. Um, I'm not sure everyone else did, but we did. And uh, we, everybody completely overshot it. Everyone was like, oh, you know, it's like 40% or it's 35%. And we would tell people the numbers wow. and they were completely shocked. Like people outside the Met on a Sunday, they were so much closer to reality. They were still above reality. They still overestimated it. But the art world especially seems to have a um, very generous um, understanding of its own sense of progress that isn't really it's actually quite dangerous because then the conversations we're just mentioning those cocktail party chats where it's like oh you know good luck getting a show if you're a white guy i think people mm -hmm. really believe that and people really believe you know there are genuine conversations within museum boards about things having gone too far you know the corrective needs to come now and when we look at the data it's like there's not even really been change i mean the peak year for female artists was 2009 for black american artists 2015. so it's 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 really interesting that that's happened that there is that disconnect from reality so the first thing would be just to be a bit more engaged with reality and facts mm -hmm. and then the second you know some one of our um, writers talks about um, separating governance from funding so that you have more of a split so you're not so corralled by market interests and mm -hmm. you know assets of your board you know nobody wants you know picasso to be cancelled if um that's like everybody's inheritance in their family for the next 17 generations. So there are real emotional reasons that people don't want change, but there are also financial reasons that people don't want change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that just getting people on the same page and having data that can react to as opposed to just perceptions is really important helping shape the date, excuse me, shape the, the debate and conversation. I mean, the capitalist, I mean, the guy who works in the art market looking at the auction data, I see this should be driving a sense of opportunity like there's a lot of value on the table like if, mm -hmm. if 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 female and artists of color are so underrepresented within the market art market but there's such a large yeah. portion of the population and growing power structures and economic structures there's a ton of fat that's there that you can that you can and value that that is available to collectors mm -hmm. um that might be priced out of other markets you, i don't know how you could look at the list and not think that like when you see yeah. that but in terms of like the superstar effect distribution you see that the top like 20 I'm, hold on, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna get it wrong. But in terms of the for men, it's like the top twenty men account for what percent of the total market? Like twenty, thirty percent. And then it's so disproportionate for Black American artists and women. Like that means that there are so many great artists underneath that top five or top twenty that are so undervalued. Like it just means there's so much more room before you get priced out to to get something that's super underpriced.
Yeah, and again, I think the perception has been that there's been a lot of these already, and maybe we've reached the you know the end of that you know in conversations with people. But I think there's so much more you know most importantly undiscovered practices that the market can uncover. And for me, that's a great thing about the market. By looking for this value, then you find you know, you ultimately find practices that haven't gotten the accolades or the attention or the eyeballs on it. Um, and as you know, and as we said before, because these represent not just numbers or acquisitions, but actual art practices and lives and people that devoted themselves, whether living uh, or, 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 or having passed, that this incredible output that people might not have seen or been aware of that should be part of the broader dialogue when we talk about you know, material culture uh, for us as, as a species. Have you gotten any feedback from some big wig in the museum world or a collector or a dealer like that you found really interesting? Like, like what's the sort of, yeah, the reaction then? Um. I mean, actually, something that's really interesting about the dealers is that we also got data from four of the big galleries and asked them about their representation and then what that represent, I need to find another word, about their representation and then what that um, meant in terms of revenue. And overwhelmingly, when you look at female artists and black American artists and then, you know, the, cross, the intersection of black American female artists, they, um, those artists within those four galleries outperformed their physical presence. And so they um, represent more in terms of revenue than they represent in terms of, um, you know, numbers on the, in, within, the, um, within the stable of the gallerists, which I think speaks to um, your point, Ben, about like opportunity, but also this idea of, you know, you have to really, you can, you can get away with being more mediocre if you're a white dude, like we all know that, but that's just really obvious when we look at the data, we're like, oh, that artist is now like, how can, oh, my, to my Beeple point, it's like Beeple's market in a couple years is half the market for every black American female artist at auction in 14 years. So, you know, there are things like that that you're like, okay, because um, people <laughs> might make an excuse for Picasso, but I'm not sure we can do that. <laughs> well, you you would think that you would think that that data point. That means really interesting. You think that that would incentivize uh, dealers, uh, both the big ones you spoke to, and presumably others, to add more and push more, uh, you know, pe artists from these classes to their roster uh, and to prominent exhibition slots. Um, if they're so, if they're outperforming, um, you know, other artists, we, one could hope. I think it's just that we see change differently than it. Um... You know, some things because people always say to us, well, what about this show or what about this auction sale or what about this sense And people experience things um, that are exceptional as like there are exceptional things that happen that people come to see as systemic shifts. So if you see like, a, you know, a rash of shows by, you know, like painting shows and you're like painting is this or whatever like we're quick to make trends and we're quick to make very fast observations on things that aren't necessarily deep but we don't necessarily notice what isn't pushed out to us like in the recent season in london around freeze like every major museum show was an artist that you know you could have landed in london in 1999 and seen that artist show and it was really striking that that just wasn't even a story whereas if it had been you know, all female artists, it would have been a media story. And then we would have been like, oh, wow, look, it's all women. How, you know, it's gone too far. Like the Venice Biennale was all women. Whoa, what does that mean? It's going too far. It's crazy. It's out of control. Whereas when it's the other way, we're like, well, that's normal. It's fine. And so we don't even notice the stuff that isn't changing, I guess. Um, well, I mean, you know, and this is, I'm, I'm not sure if this is negative or positive, but it's kind of the way I've looked at things for all. I mean, 
art always has been um and you know maybe it'll change has been a reflection of kind of the dominant structures of power that exist in the world i think going back in history um you know the church before and and other things and now very much the economics and the market um and i'm wondering if to see a true change in these numbers we need to have a more broad-based and kind of even revolutionary change in the way that power structures in the world are created because you know whether it's four percent or twelve percent in some sense you know you're sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic until there's really a systematic kind of sea change in how the world operates. Yeah, I think that's such a big point because it really gets to the heart of it when you're, you know, when you're looking at museums, this isn't just like a, a nice thing to discuss. This is really what we're talking about valuing what we preserve as like humans for future generations. Yeah. It's, and so, you know, one of the one of the disheartening things that you'll have seen on the film is an academic called Renee Adams, who basically runs um, studies into this and looked at the kind of gap between value perception with um, male identifying and female identifying artists. And they kind of generate images from AI and then randomly assign male or female names to the same work. And the group that she interviewed are people in, you know, who are who are interested in culture and would have some understanding of art and its market. And they overwhelmingly, and they're men, and they overwhelmingly um, found more value in the random male names than in the random female names for the exact same image. So there are biases that go so deep that it's hard to kind of grapple with them, which is something we deal with when we do this report. There are things that we just assume that then we're like, oh, we should check that. Um, so it's it's a very bracing exercise for us. We're constantly tripping up on our own biases. Um, like people said to us, oh, it's the boards, you know, it's because all the boards are so male. That's why there's no women artists. And we were like, yeah, totally. That sounds right. And then we were like, wait, this is a data study. We should check. So we checked and we were like, it's not true. There's like, you know, pretty much gender parity in boards of the boards that we looked at. Yeah, but it's it's definitely not about bodies in the room, put it that way. Um, so it, it's it's a really complicated thing and it requires, I guess, to your point about oxygen and Good news what we can see is really interesting is that there isn't some like big dramatic solution to this it's actually just very human scale it just takes focus it just takes care and it just takes time and when we look at institutions where you know individuals and the structures supporting them focuses on this you can see that there's change and it's like not that big and not that sexy and not that press released but it just is something that changes the practice of the institution um so it's kind of ordinary how we make change. It's how we make change in any way. Yeah, I mean, even if just, you know, if the if the collections entering museums now were built in the latter quarter of the 20th century, presume in 50 years, uh, you know, or so, the, the, the collections that are being built now enter museums. And even if there isn't parity in those collections by private collectors now, if it's, you know, 30, 40 percent, you know, something more, more reasonable over time, it'll begin to change, you know, uh, incrementally. Um, the composition of these these museum collections. Yeah, and I also think to your point of like, do we have to burn it all down and start over? I do think part of what we kind of found in talking to people and doing the additional editorial is like, you know, this is one place where we're looking. Like we're just looking at these museums that happen to generally be like pretty prominent mainstream institutions. Um, you know, there are plenty of other art art institutions, art collectives that are happening outside of that mainstream that have chosen, you know, for whatever reason, not to participate in like the art world we're talking about that are fundamentally different and and present kind of like a fundamentally different balance of power. Um, and so 
you know, this is, we're kind of looking at one particular club, but there are a lot of other people doing a lot of different work. Um, so it doesn't, again, it's not like these artists aren't out there doing stuff. Um, they're just not reflected in this particular slice. I think that's such a good point because it's also about relevance as you go forward, talking about next generations, is museums can carry on collecting the kind of stuff they've always collected. But the bigger question is like, does that make them sort of precious repositories? Like, are they going to be relevant? Is that what people are going to want to see in 30 years time? And so, you know, museums, it's not just a question of it being nice or it being a business opportunity. It's also really about being relevant. And, you know, ideally that's what the museums would aspire to, but the taste has to kind of shift and evolve, I think, if 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 that's you know museums have said they want to be these publicly facing institutions which isn't what they used to want to be and so that means a lot of different things well i mean i think that we have our charges go forth and, and sort of make this incremental change and you know as the museums you know sort of there's get new directors and new staff you know it'll happen incrementally and I also think, yeah, like keep track. Like one of the things that I did after we started doing this study was keeping track of the writers that were that I was commissioning at Artnet in terms of freelance writers. And like, actually, like, you know, is this a writer of color? Is this not a writer of color? Because I could just be like, oh, I'm commissioning a ton of writers of color because I feel like I'm doing it and I feel like I'm trying. But unless you actually hold yourself accountable and keep looking, I was never commissioning the kind of ratio that I had initially sought out to do until I kept track. So I also I also think it's like, you know, don't don't trust your don't trust yourself, people. That's, I never that's have. I never have. <laughs> <laughs> We're working that out in therapy. Um yeah. all right. Guys. You know, I had this I had a bunch of other little small questions, but I think that's a really nice place to to end it on in terms of how we can move forward. Um but in terms of you guys moving forward, is this an ongoing project? I presume you're still collecting data. Like, you know, will can we look forward to the twenty twenty three report we are um in the codependent relationship at this point <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think um i you know julia's going away like in a couple of weeks and i'm like what am, who am i going to talk to every day like what are we going to discuss am i going to have to find other interests like i'm not really ready for that <laughs> so um unless we find better things to do with our time I, I imagine there will be more all right well thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast this is an amazing episode i can't wait for everyone to hear it Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, really, really glad to have your voices in the world and with us today. And with that, thank you so much. Note to Bene. Bene. Ow. Ow.